Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your great love for us. The love that we can never earn, that we certainly do not deserve, but the love that you lavished upon us to great sacrifice to your own self. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to step off your heavenly throne and come into this world, not just to teach us and not just to be a good example, even though you were those things. Lord Jesus, you came ultimately to go to that cross, to die, to pay the penalty we deserved for our sins so that through faith in you, we could have freedom and that we could have life. Lord, we thank you for your love that you've shown us in such extravagant ways. And I pray that now as we open the scripture, that you will open our eyes and hearts in fresh ways to the greatness of who you are and just how amazing it is that you have done what you've done and then help us to see then how we apply that in our lives as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. About six months ago, there was an event in England that sent social media into a frenzy. And this event, they revolved around Meghan Markle, who was the American actress who became a princess by marrying Prince Harry. And I want you to just think for a minute, if you've paid attention to the news about six months ago, social media, if you might have any inkling of what this event might have been. Because it was a very controversial event. It caused quite a stir. Let me tell you what the event was. Meghan Markle, a princess, shut her own car door. Let me show you a video. Meghan Markle is spotted shutting her own car door and people are freaking out. All eyes were on Meghan when she made her first solo appearance as the Duchess of Sussex at the Royal Academy of Arts in London. But one part of her visit is now shocking royal watchers. As Meghan exits her car before viewing the Oceana art exhibit, she gives a friendly greeting, then turns to close the door she just stepped out of. There's a reason people are doing a double take at this particular moment. Since it happens while the Duchess is making an official appearance, noted journalist and royal biographer Christopher Wilson, who's written several books on the royals, tweets, first time I've seen an on-duty princess shut her own car door. Eagle-eyed fans also point out Meghan handled her own door closing as well at the recent Kensington Palace launch of her charity cookbook. When Meghan and Harry paid an official visit to the Wellchild Awards together, the vehicle door was open and closed for her. Other social media users described the Duchess and her casual move as down-to-earth and humble, declaring she has no stuffy airs and they love her for it. In October, Meghan and Harry will visit the Oceana region with stops in Fiji and the Kingdom of Tonga, along with the Commonwealth countries of Australia and and New Zealand. I mean, who knew that shutting a car door could cause such a stir? But it did. And, and there were two main types of responses that people had. On one hand, there was a significant group of people who were upset at what happened. They said, you know what, she shouldn't be doing that. It's against royal protocol. It, it shows that Meghan Markle is not a true princess. They were shocked. They felt like it was an outrage. It was, uh, it was scandalous because, you know what, real royalty would certainly not close their own car door. And, and so that was one type of reaction. The other type of reaction was much more positive. They saw it and, and they were impressed at what she did. They, they praised her for her humility. They praised her because they said, you know what, this shows us her down-to-earth nature. And this helps, her, helps us relate to her much better. All because she shut her car door. 
And I look at this and I think, what type of world do we live in? How messed up is our world that greatness means that you cannot shut your own car door? Or on the other hand, that that people applaud excitedly when someone does shut their own car door. I mean, that's what was taking place. And, And we live in this world where greatness and success is pursued and measured by your wealth and by your popularity and by your achievements and by the things that you have, by your beauty. But the problem is, all this at the end of the day is just stuff. And in the kingdom of God, the true measurement of success and the true measurement of greatness is found in something very different than all these things we've just been talking about. I invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We are in a series right now that is called Jesus Humble and Exalted. And the series looks at two of the main problems we have as humans. One problem is that we frequently uh, think too, too little of Jesus. We have too small a view of who he is that we, we take him for granted, we get familiar with him, and we stop standing in awe of who he is. Another problem that we have as humans is that we don't give Jesus the honor that he is due. That that we get too shaped by the values of this world and by the desires of our sinful nature. And so the way that we live our lives ends up not fully honoring Jesus. And here in Philippians 2, this passage seeks to remedy both of these problems. I invite you to follow along as I read Philippians 2, picking up in verse 6. It says, Jesus... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what we see here is the U-shaped pathway that Jesus' life took. He started high and exalted, the King of kings, Lord of lords, creator of everything. And then he took a downward path, a humble path, willingly letting go of that heavenly glory coming into this world, really going down to the lowest of lows, and then he was exalted once more to the highest place. That's the U-shaped trajectory that shows that the pathway in the kingdom of God is first humility followed by exaltation. And it shows that in the kingdom of God, success and greatness are found through humility and sacrifice and service. Today we're looking at verse 7. Of, of Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what this verse shows, along with the verse from last week and next week, is that Jesus embraced a downward mobility. Most people socially, they want to rise upward. They want upward mobility, moving to higher stratas of the social spectrum. They want better stuff, more money, more popularity, stuff like that. But Jesus... He went the other direction, willingly. He embraced a downward mobility. And we see here in verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself, which means that he willingly let go of his exalted privileges of godhood. 
that he was God. He never ceased to be God. But he had exalted privileges as God, but he chose to, chose to willingly let those go. We saw that last week in verse 6, where it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, he did not use his godhood and the privileges that came with it as leverage to bring benefit to himself. Instead, he let go of that and came into this world. He emptied himself. And then, then we see he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Jesus came to this world as a servant. That is how he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now between verses 6 and 7, if you were to study this passage in depth, you would see that there are parallel phrases in verses 6 and 7 that use identical wording except for one word that changes between the two. Verse 6 says that Jesus was in the form of God. Verse 7 says that he was in the form of a servant. And that is astounding to get, really get your mind around, that he was God, but he was also a servant. It sounds a bit incongruent. Now, in our day, the, the idea of serving is popular. I mean, the idea of servant leadership is very trendy these days. If you go on Amazon like I did for these pictures, you will find that you just type in servant leadership. Tons of books come up because that's a very popular, cool, trendy type of thing. It seems one of the best practices if you want to lead in a home or in an organization, in a church, in a business, whatever. The, the idea of servant leadership is trendy and cool in our culture. Not so back in Jesus' culture. It was certainly not trendy or cool to, to aspire to greatness or leadership, but then to serve at the same time. Because back in that culture, servants were on the lower rung of the social spectrum. You, you might be a servant if you need a job or if you were a slave of some sort, but weren't able to rise above that station in life. And servants, they did what other people did not want to do. They did the menial tasks uh, like, you know, washing clothes, uh, like cooking meals, uh, keeping the house clean, uh, washing the feet of the, the people who live in that house or the feet of visitors when they come and visit. They did things like cleaning up after the animals. Um, I mean, all kinds of things that people may not have wanted to do, but that's what servants did. And in that society, if you were someone who was aspiring to greatness, the goal then was to have people serving you rather than you serving other people. If you aspired to greatness, it would be absolutely shameful you to stoop down and serve someone else. And that is why it was so shocking when Jesus at the Last Supper, John chapter 13, that Jesus, he took off his outer garment, he picked up a basin of water and a towel, and he began to wash his disciples' feet. Now feet, I mean, some of us might think it's kind of strange to have our feet washed, but feet have, have kind of changed through the years in terms of their footwear. Because we have closed shoes, our feet might get a little bit smelly, but it would be a very different story back then because they all had open shoes, sandals. And so as they're walking on these dusty streets, um, I mean, they get a lot of dirt and dust on their feet. They get sweat down there. Um, I mean, on top of that, uh, I mean, you have open sewage out all over the place. You have um, poo from various animals been walking on the street. And you can bet that gets on their feet as well. And so when someone would enter a house, their feet needed to be washed. 
And if people were, did not wash their own feet, they would have a servant wash their feet. And the servant who washed their feet was always the lowest of the servants because that was such a, a disgusting, degrading form of service. Yet he was Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. They knew it was shameful. That is why Peter said, no, Jesus, you will not wash my feet. Because it didn't make sense that someone who could be a great leader would be serving people in this way. Yet that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came in the form of a servant. Yet he was still God at the same time. It seems like an oxymoron. It seems incongruent. How can you have God being a servant? But he emptied himself of that heavenly glory when he came to this earth. And he came as a servant. Last week I referred to the TV show called Undercover Boss, which is about a corporate executive who goes in disguise, has TV cameras following him or her, and then goes and takes one of the low-level jobs in his or her own company to see what happens. It is a fascinating show that I think has a lot of parallels to what Jesus did. I pointed out last week there are some distinct differences as well. But one of the really fascinating things to me in that show is to observe how the executive is treated when he or she goes undercover in his own company or her own company. Because if the executive were to come in, you know, a nice, fancy, expensive suit, a corporate entourage, if they come in like that, they're going to get immediate reverence. But when they come in with a disguise and no one recognizes, hey, that's the boss, they aren't treated with nearly as much reverence or respect. I mean, some of them get fired from their own company. And so you have this, uh, this reality that, that people's treatment of other people is in large part based to their appearances. The appearances make a difference in how people are treated. And then you have Jesus who came into this world basically as the undercover God. And that his external appearances also affected how people treated him. From eternity past... Jesus had a corner office. His corner office was heaven. I mean, the best of all corner offices. I, I think of Isaiah chapter 6 where we see a glimpse of what it was like for Jesus from eternity past. Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of heaven. And he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice, and the house was filled with smoke. Now there's a fair amount of figurative language in, in this imagery. But you see, he was high and exalted. This was his corner office. He was willing to leave that corner office, leave heaven, and come to this earth. He willingly let go of the privileges of godhood. And he came here in the form of a servant. But because he was a servant, because he came kind of with that disguise of human flesh, people did not recognize him. And it shows that greatness in the kingdom of God cannot be judged by external appearances. Let me say that again. Greatness in the kingdom of God, cannot be judged by external appearances. And we see again in verse 7, Jesus is the epitome of that. It says, They emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Jesus is God in human form. But because he was in human form, a lot of people didn't recognize him for who he really was. That he was the boss. That he's the king of kings and lord of lords. They didn't recognize that for the most part. He came with a disguise. He came in a form that they did not expect because he came as a servant. Now, verse 7 here about, you know, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, was born in, in human likeness. That is a great verse for Christmas. Because it's talking about Jesus' birth into this world, that he came in human form. And I think about Christmas songs that we sing that have proclaimed the very truth that's right here in this passage. I think, for instance, of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which I believe has some of the best theology of any Christmas song. The song sings, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, born or pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. And what we see there is that Jesus, he is God in human form. He is God incarnate, which means the God with flesh. He is God with us. He is the undercover God here in human form. I mean, you see this incredible humility that he's living with, and he came to serve. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus is speaking, referring to himself, and he says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not to be served. Greatness in the world's eyes wants to be served. But Jesus, the greatest of all, he came to serve others. And verse 45 of Mark 10 indicates just why it was necessary for Jesus to become human. Because he did take on human form. And in order to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins, he had to be human. We had a spiritual death penalty. A human had to pay it in order for justice to be served. That's why Jesus became human. That's why he was born into human likeness. Not just to teach, not just to be a model for us, even though those things are true. But he came to die be a ransom for us, to pay our penalty in our place, which required being human. But he did not do that grudgingly. He did it willingly. I think Pastor John Ortberg has it right when John Ortberg says that when Jesus came in the form of a servant, he was not disguising who God is. He was revealing who God is. I mean, he was sort of in a disguise in the sense of, of having a human body and coming in a form that people weren't recognizing or weren't expecting. But in doing so, he's really revealing who God is. Because God is not selfish. God is not out to, to just do whatever he pleases, no matter what effect it has on anyone else. He's not leveraging his benefits at the expense of other people. He instead is, is serving he is meeting our needs as he sees them. And so Jesus was revealing who God truly is. And as we look at Philippians 2, I think this is one of the most revealing passages in Scripture about what Jesus was doing. I mean, it really gives us insight into what's going on in the mind of God in Jesus and his birth and his life and his death. And in fact, it points to that in verse 5. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Literally, it's saying, okay, here is the mind of Christ. I'm going to lay out for you what is going through Jesus' mind, and I want you to have that same mind in yourself. Jesus is humble. He's living a sacrificial lifestyle. He is serving others. He's following that U-shaped trajectory. And Paul is saying, you know what? Have that same mind in yourself. So we get a glimpse into Jesus' mind 
And I want to move back even earlier in the passage to verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now this is not a command just coming in a vacuum. This is a command that Jesus has already demonstrated and lived out in his own life. Jesus is our prime example of what it looks like to live in a way that is not based on selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility is counting others better than, than himself. He's looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we are called to do the same. This is a message from Jesus throughout his ministry. It's not his only message, but it is a key part of it. I think of John 13, after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, It says that when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is telling his disciples, literally, he says, hey, go wash other people's feet. We have to understand in our culture, washing feet doesn't have quite the same symbolism. But the bigger message that Jesus is telling, even to his disciples back then, was go and serve. Don't worry about pursuing greatness in the world's eyes. No, humbly choose to serve others just as I've served you. And so this week, as I was working on this message, I was trying to think of, of a great story to share right here in this message. And I wanted a story that would show just how amazing it is to serve others selflessly. And I was trying to think of some big story that would be memorable because, you know what, memorable stories are nice because then you take them and you may not remember anything else I say. But then you go out and, you know, later in the day or later in the week, you can still remember the story. And so I was trying to think of one of those stories. I was, I was searching the internet. I was looking at my bookcase, thinking, oh, maybe a book will jog my memory on the story. I was thinking through my own life, thinking through people I knew. And then suddenly I realized we are not looking for one big, fabulous, amazing story to illustrate selfless service. I mean, if we need that story, Jesus is that story. But when we look at the selfless service that we are called to in Philippians 2, it is something that's lived out selflessly on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. It's something that does not speak the, seek the spotlight. It's just a part of lifestyle of how we live our lives in a blessing to other people. Let me give you a few examples that have come to mind. For instance, I know of a man who seeks to unload the dishwasher in his house whenever he notices that the dishes are clean. I know of a woman who took off work last week to drive her uncle to a doctor's appointment that was two hours away. I know of a good number of people who take the initiative each Sunday to push women in wheelchairs out of the sanctuary. I know a man who comes in here every week on his own time and sets the stage to get ready for that week's worship team. I know a woman who secretly paid the postage on all of Frieden's birthday cards for many years. I know a small army of volunteers who hold babies and play with young children in the nursery so their parents can worship God with fewer distractions. 
I know two couples who mow Frieden's yard every week during the summer. I know a woman who has given deeply of herself to help her extended family through a traumatic situation. I know a man who always parks in the back of the parking lot to let others park closer to the church building. I know many parents who get on the floor and play with their kids even when the parents are tired and when they may prefer to do something else. I know a man who calls every one of his family and friends and their spouses on their birthday, hundreds and hundreds of them, just because he loves them. And I could share more stories. I mean, I've had a lot of other examples that come to mind, but I think this illustrates how this heart of selfless service to others, it's not lived out in the spotlight. It's not these big, amazing things that you spend weeks planning on how am I going to serve here. It's lived out just in daily life, in the little things, but it's a mentality through which we filter how we use our time, how we use our money, how we use our talent, that we are asking ourselves continually in line with Philippians chapter 2. Am I doing what I'm doing primarily exclusively for my own benefit or for the benefit of others? Because Paul says, don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. And we look at Jesus. I mean, Jesus displayed such amazing humility. I mean, to onlookers, it was unthinkable that the God of the universe could be here in human form, and especially in that form of a servant. You would think if, Jesus come, if God comes to this world in human form, he's going to come with great pomp and circumstance. I mean, he's going to come as a ruling king. It's going to be obvious. Jesus came in the form of a servant, revealing what the true heart of God is. He took on human form. He served others. He washed their feet. And he ultimately died for us. And I think about Meghan Markle again and how people applauded her for that little act of humility of shutting her own car door. And they said, you know what? She's showing so much humility and she's so down to earth and I can relate to her so much better now. And I think how much more ought we to praise Jesus for the extreme act of humility that he showed stepping off his heavenly throne. How much more ought we to praise Jesus for the down-to-earth nature that he showed by coming to this world in human form? And how much better can we relate to God now that Jesus has done what he did? During the Last Supper, in the minutes after Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he foretold the ultimate form of service that he would ever do. He said in Matthew chapter 26, he said, it says that now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we recognize that when Jesus came to this earth, he came with a human body. And when he died on the cross, that body that he took on when he came to this earth was broken. His body was broken and his blood was shed. He did this as a way of serving, a way of loving in order to redeem us. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper with that cup representing his blood that was shed for us. The, the little wafer is just symbolic, but it, it reminds us of his body that was broken on our behalf to offer us reconciliation with God. I encourage you to use this time in, over the next few minutes to prepare your heart to celebrate 
the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, we must remember that Jesus, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incredible humility. A humility that just boggles our minds when we really think about it. And that you would step off your heavenly throne, that you leave that corner office of heaven and come to this world. Lord, I pray that you will work in our hearts to motivate us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to serve others selflessly. And to not do it begrudgingly. Jesus, we think about how you, you emptied yourself. That was not something that was done to you forcibly. It was not something that someone else robbed from you. No, you intentionally and willingly emptied yourself. You did not leverage your assets for your own benefit, but you instead used who you were and what you had to benefit others. And I pray that you will motivate us to do the same. And now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to, to receive the Lord's Supper, we thank you that we can approach you. We thank you, Lord, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray that you will do a work in our hearts in these coming minutes to help us to, to confess any sin to you that's not yet confessed and to receive your forgiveness that's available through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.